So stay where you are. 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 Ann Arbor. episode of Living Writers with poet Robert Fanning was first recorded in July of 2009. Robert Fanning will be in Ann Arbor tomorrow, Thursday, May 4th, to read at Literati from his new book of poems, Our Sudden Museum. Listening to Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, today on the program, Robert Fanning is here. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. <laughs> Great to be here. His, his latest book from Merrick Press, American Prophet. Um, thanks to Alex, Alex Belhaj, who is um, manning the engineering, and also to Dustin and Brian, who, who brought us in with all that great music uh, and conversation, too, before, before uh, this program kicks off. And uh, uh, Closets Are for Clothes coming up later. Um, Robert. Hi, T. It's so great to see you here. It's uh, great it's, to be here. And and Robert picked all the the music, the um, flaming lips that yeah we yep. came in on. <laughs> yeah, that's we'll we'll get into that. But music is is big to me, so it was a pleasure to be able to do that. I, all the songs chosen by Robert Fanning. Okay, and bef- without further ado, I'll read the bio in the back of the latest book, American Prophet. Robert Fanning is the author of Old Bright Wheel, Ledge Press, Poetry Award 2003, and The Seed Thieves, Merrick Press 2006. His poems have appeared in numerous journals, including Poetry and Shenandoah. 
a graduate of the University of Michigan and Sarah Lawrence College. Fanning's writing awards include a creative artist grant from ArtServe Michigan and others. He is an assistant professor of creative writing at Central Michigan University. And if you'd like to follow along online while we're chatting, you could go to robertfanning.com, which is um, Robert's website. And uh, it's a good one. I've, I've visited it, and uh, I love your biography on there, actually. Oh, I had fun writing that. That was uh, a sort of delving into some fiction, I suppose. <laughs> nonfiction, creative nonfiction. Oh, I was like, wait, fiction? You weren't born in Switzerland, no, Geneva? No, no, it's, it's, it's real, but... Um, push, madame. Is that what that is? Yeah, that was were the first words I heard. Push, madame. <laughs> So you've been told, or do you have some sort of crazy baby memory? You know, no, I was told those were the those were the words being said. You know, in French, "pousse madame." So, so that was yeah, kind of funny. And and so the biography there is is really informative. It seems like your family also lived in in England for a while. Um, that's where you were. You had your your young years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you came to Michigan, and you were kind of mocked for your accents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was it was interesting early on. I was born in Geneva, Switzerland, and um, my my father worked for Chrysler and did you know so he was um, he, we traveled a lot early on. So lived in England for a total of six years. It was interrupted once by you know three years in the U.S. So it was kind of back and forth across the ocean for a little bit. Um, but I've been here since '79. But yeah, when we when we first came back, I was a little British boy for a while there. <laughs> Can you do you ever find yourself slipping into the accent or not really? Well, don't, really do that very often um you know most of the time i speak american but um if if americans really a, a you know like an accent <laughs> is that is that how you would have sounded robert i have no idea because that almost sounds like one of the beatles or something like uh, were you from liverpool like totally well it's <laughs> i'm fangirl or something right? i was playing with that accent w once with a, a genuine british person and and uh, they kind of laughed because it was a, really a pastiche of about five different accents <laughs> is it? so <Okay>. yeah <laughs> So I don't know. But. So no, like it, no trotting out the the random English tones. No, no I haven't had much need for it. But <laughs> I, I, I suppose I could have done that this whole interview. Nobody would have known, you know. But too late now. <laughs> well, you know, at the break, maybe people will just be tuning in. There you go. Always start just afresh. Into it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your alter ego. Was there a reason that you, um, when you wrote the, the bio for your website, Robert, that you sort of, you played with it as creative nonfiction? Because there is like, it's like a, a, a funny, like a tone running through it. and yeah. It was just fun to write, you know. I, there's something really strange about having your own website anyway, you know, robertfanning.com. I, I was very kind of nervous about that, didn't feel comfortable with any of it. But my brother-in-law, who is beautiful and wonderful Dan Marlowe wanted you know wanted the experience of designing a website and we talked about it so he designed it for me and then um, so I think I was <laughs> I didn't want it to sound all self-important or anything like that so I was just sort of having fun with it when did you launch it Robert oh that website really with the seed thieves so 2006 I think so it's been up for you know a few years already <laughs> So, but it, it's it's kind of um, this now. It's very strange to have a website because it's just sort of a static thing. Um, I find that I, I use Facebook to kind of um, talk about writing or with writers or kind of announce my readings and things like that. So it's like you have Facebook, you have a website, but it's kind of we're in this zone now where as public, publicizing yourself as a writer is really strange, you know. And then there's email. I never know which to use to reach people more. So yeah, how because how do you keep up with all of it? And and do some things then get left where you keep thinking, well, I meant to. 
update that. Or, right. Yeah. But the website's a really good place just as a kind of a repository of information to have a few poems up there and, you know, and links to buy the book, you know. Um, so it's it's been good to have. And, and it's it's great to, if you're just, if you meet someone in passing and, you know, you get into a conversation about your writing and you can just say, oh, yeah, go to my website oh, <laughs> if yeah. you can't have the full conversation. So Do you feel like that's important as an American poet now to have a website and a presence on the web? I, I like it. I, and I think especially, you know, the generation of writers now and, and the, the ones coming up, I mean, that's very normal to them. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of poets of, of my generation, you know, some have websites, some don't. And then, you know, poets a little older than me, you know, a lot of them don't. But a lot of them do. So we're in this kind of middle zone right now. Um, but I think it's very valuable, a, a wonderful tool to, to access a lot of people. I've had people who, you know, have accessed my website from really far away and, and send me emails. So that's fantastic. I mean, to, to be able What's to... What's an example of that? Like, what do you mean? Like, across well, the world? Like in, well, really, I a see... A nurse from Geneva. <laughs> That's a whole other story that we won't have time for. But um, I actually, I have been contacted a few times. There was a woman uh, from, I think, Cuba, somebody from, I think, I want to say Zimbabwe, who actually, but that was because I had a poem on um, the Writer's Almanac with Garrison Keillor. Well, you've so. had three chosen by Garrison. Yeah, so that, that, I think, that goes so far out there. So I don't think that had anything to do with people stumbling into my website. But then that linked... Yes. to your website. Yes. What was it like to hear Garrison's voice reading your poem? That was, yeah, very unusual. Um, I think he reads poems very well, you know. I mean, people either love or hate his voice. Um, but as far as honoring the poem on the page, he does a really good job of it. And uh, I really admire that about him. I think it was, it was you know, it's very weird. It's always weird hearing somebody else read your poem, but it, but exciting, you know. Um, but he, he, he reads the poems really well, and, and uh, I think he's done a lot for for um, poetry and for and for getting it out there, and, and Robert, how did that come about? Had had did Garrison call you up one day and say, "Mr. Fanning, I wish I could do a like trot out a Garrison Keeler impression," <laughs> but how did does he just say? I'd like to, I've chosen your poem for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. <laughs> he just um, called me one day and said, Robert, this is Garrison Keeler, and I'd like to maybe read one of your poems online. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's two impressions. This You should pay me for this. Um, actually, and stay no <laughs> tuned throughout the hour. Other impressions. <laughs> no, those within. are the only two I do. Um, but anyways, no, that was a that was a fluke thing too. I was just, you know, I think when you're on a small independent press, you're looking to publicize your work and you're doing a lot on your own. Um, and so I was just kind of going through things online, looking for places to send my book. And I just wrote a little note and email, sent it to them, sent a book along and got, got a response pretty quickly and that they had chosen a poem. So it was fantastic. I didn't expect anything to come of it. And, and you put the, the book in the mail mm -hmm. and sent it. There's nothing like getting a book in the mail though. I mean, yeah. I was very excited when American Prophet turned up when, when Merrick Press sent it. It was, it's true. It's a it joy is true. to get. It is. So that, but that, yeah, that blew me away. And then to have had a couple more poems in there, um, it's just, you know, there's something lucky about it. Be maybe then it be becomes a relationship then because then they know you and then they might they like ask again. Maybe yeah yeah they haven't asked but I just kind of every few months I'll send a, send along something. Sometimes they'll you know obviously three times they've they've said yes and and I think one or two other times they didn't. So well, when did you figure out that you wanted to? be a writer because on, on your website you have a story about that but I wondered how, does it go back when you were even like a, a wee lad or or, <laughs> or is it that that epiphany at 17 years old or what well I, I always loved um, writing I always found uh, it was a haven you know um, 
I had a, a wild uh, childhood growing up in a family uh, with eight siblings, and um, so it was a, you know, it was a place of refuge um, to read and to write and um, and to just make sense of things. So early on, I, I loved to to write and mostly wrote kind of you know probably really embarrassingly bad journal entries for for, for, mo- <laughs> for much of my life. But it was in high school that I was inspired by a teacher, Don Lytle, um, and he wrote, "You are a poet" on something I and I think that sort of stuck. I remember I get kind of goosebumps just thinking of that so he either cursed or blessed me at that moment and then um and then in college um i had a alternate love for music and for and for writing so i was in a rock band here when i was at u of m uh, for a couple of years and what was your band called oh god um we were called rain dance or a-i-n and i have to make the distinction because there was an mtv <laughs> real world show going on at the time and that there was another band called rain dance but um anyway they spelled differently yeah they were r-e-i-g-n so, uh, uh, anyways, but um, so my pushier that yeah, band. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so we, so I had a really kind of a competing love for music and and for poetry. But um, and then you know, as the cliche goes, our drummer quit and the band sort of fizzled apart. When I was a senior here at U of M, I was. I was about to quit school and go on the road with the band. Things were going really well. And then the drummer quit. <laughs> and so I decided, well, maybe I should focus more on my love of writing. And and so um, that really... Who was that drummer? <laughs> I won't use his name, but he's, no? a, he's oh, a really okay. wonderful guy. No, I was going to say, because in a way you can give him a shout out, or the poetry world can, because I might have... Andy Moon was his name. He's a good man. I, I think he lives out west somewhere now. But um, but two of the guys who were in our band went on, formed an, another band. They were in a band called Versus. I think one of the songs uh, that I selected was from Versus, uh, James Beluiet and um, Patrick Ramos. And, and now they are uh, in a band called Plus Minus. And, and they're, you know, they tour a lot. They play around the world. And, you know, I think they were just in France and Japan before that. So it's cool to see those guys kind of keep that going. And then... does, does it ever seem like a parallel life or so with the like that that could be yeah it, it I, I often wish i i might have known what that was like that was 1993 when i was in that band was the best year of my life you know just there's something so raw about music and, and just being able to scream and shout uh into a microphone um you know maybe i i in my writing i that's in there too you know some of that shouting but our definitely our, in this latest oh, in the good. American yeah Prophet. so so I'm I'm jealous of what music can do, and it, you know the way it can transport emotion uh, um, in a more sort of visceral and immediate way sometimes. But that I think that really does inform my poems, um, which I I I think are very musical pieces themselves. So um, there's no question that the two have been linked for me uh, for for a long time. So, but yeah, my my love of music is is constant and and competing. Well, let's. Well, we're going to take a short break, sure. Robert, and then when we come back, maybe we'll talk about your the making and your methodology Sounds and how great. music th- plays a role in that. Great. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Robert Fanning, his latest American Prophet. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Robert Fanning, his latest book of poems, American Prophet. I'm T. Hetzel, and thanks to Alex Belhodge for engineering. Um, so, Robert, that music played a gigantic role in the creation of American Prophet. How? Well, that was one uh, among probably three or four songs that I would just listen to on repeat, just sort of looping in, in my headphones as I would write. And that's a really disturbing piece of music. Why? Because uh, we only got to hear a, a small well, piece Well, it's beautiful it. and haunting, but you have these... And that was minute four yeah. of the song. So, yeah, and it's it's about, a, I don't know, an eight or nine minute song. And that's a, by a band called um, a Silver Mountain Zion National Orchestra and Tralala Band out of Montreal. And um, their music, and, and some of the members are members of Godspeed, You Black Emperor, and the genre they are calling post-rock, but um, a lot of that music is sort of um, dark and, um, you know, a lot of their lyrics have to do with sort of the end of time and stuff, and uh, they're, they're just, it's really moving, um, but that piece of music is, is really like these competing evangelists through radio static, and uh, somehow, when as I, the idea for The Prophet came to me, that, that, that piece became very important. Um, and then I would also listen to uh, Sigur Ross, um, Icelandic band, um, a couple of their songs over and over again. Music for me sets the tone. It creates a mood. It's very visual. Um, so in order... And something know, that you feel as yeah, well, right? Through yeah. cor coursing. Yeah, and, and I think it's very cinematic. I, I, I hope my poems achieve some sort of cinematic quality, so I always think of how music and imagery relate together. So I would listen to that song and other songs to get myself into the mood, so to speak, and then just get down in that place where the poems live. And, and that must be... Um it's, that's can also always be a challenge to get down to the place where the poems live. But now, and now with a family as well, do you have have you found that the the way you get to the writing or the time has changed? Uh, the, the no work? question, absolutely no question. Um, American Prophet, most of it was written. Um, Right before our children were born, Gabriel's now four, Magdalena's one, um, and so. How did you start with this idea? Because did you have either a dream or a nightmare or a vision that said what you need to do is have this prophet I don't know walk you, through a book? Yeah, I don't know if you'd call it a vision, but I remember um, I was sitting at my brother's house, and it was July Fourth, and he was having kind of a, a pool party, and um, you know, but it was my family. But I was in this really down place, and um, you know. On July 4th, you know, when there's hot dogs grilling and, you know, backyard pool splashing, you should be kind of light, you know. But I had this image of a guy in a black suit walking down the street and standing on the diving board. In black shoes. Yeah. And um, uh, so I don't know if it was, it was just this feeling that something's wrong. There's so much wrong right now. And I think this book is, is sort of a, in some ways, a time capsule of the of the Bush years and, um, you know, just kind of the, and, you know, post 9-11 and just the kind of paranoia and fear of that time uh, in some ways. Um, but I'll, I'll read that poem that really, the first poem I wrote, um, and I had no idea this would end up being a character who I would follow. Um, it was just after I wrote this poem, a few days later, I, I thought, boy, maybe I should write more of these. Uh, and I, then he was kind of born as a, as a character. But this poem was, a, a, at one, for five minutes, a standalone poem. And I'll read it. It's called The Prophet's Lament at Spring Break. Standing on the diving board in his black shoes and suit, the prophet casts his hand's shadow on the curved globe of the huge party beach ball, but no one heeds. Enough of this blind reverie, he shouts. 
but can't outdo the pink radio on full blast, the diva's citrus wail. Hoisting a bruised apple, he offers the gnawed heart of this nation, but fades, momentarily lost in the oil-slicked curves and belly rings, all the licking and jiggling, the tattooed machismo, the orgiastic thump of thundering bass, tangled teen lovers rolling like carp in the shallow end, the cannonball splash, the squirt gun war. As he booms, this false palace teeters on a rotten foundation. The prophet fights the fleeting thought that life is short, that maybe they're right to splash and giggle, right to be blind to the clouds of ash billowing from their burning cities, soon to swallow the sun, right to ignore the lifeguard, the glaring signs. Poolside, a dropped bomb pop sits stick up in the stain of its spilled flag. And on the pool's surface, the dance of flickering marbled light, the glazed citizens bobbing on inflatable dinosaurs out beyond rescue. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> I'll have to remember to play that in the spring again. <laughs> or wait, I guess for Michigan, it's it's like late like late winter when people go off for spring break. <laughs> well, and you can see how you know the, the, what where the poem originated was just in this sitting poolside, and then I, it became this this spring break, and all of a sudden, all these college coeds, you know, in the water. So you know, it's funny how poems do that, how they begin as one idea, and then so anyway, I went on and just followed this guy, and and it was absolutely thrilling for me because my process normally involves chiseling away. I often use the metaphor of sculpture or gardening, you know, just chiseling and chiseling, chiseling line by line by line by line by line, um, and very kind of more formal writing. Um, this was, the poems were kind of, I was writing them more rapidly, and every night I was just, I'd sit down and go, okay, where do you want to go? And speaking to that character really, and and it gave me the opportunity to write about places and, and, and things that I normally wouldn't. Um, there are some political type of poems in there, um, there are times when he just shows up in a landscape um, or he's in a city. And so it just, it, it was, it was like going on a journey really and just sort of following him to see where he, he would go. And how did you know when that journey was over or how did you, how did you feel like the journey was shaping itself? Well, as I, I just continue to write them and, and I, I do believe that when you're working on a book, um, when you start to realize it's becoming a book, that's a dangerous time because then you, it's a good time and a dangerous time because you start to, it starts to take on shape, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I, I want it to be more intuitive. So anyway, I just kept writing the poems and writing them and writing them. And then I could see, then, then there was a, a conscious, um, interlude um, where I would start to I started to see the book taking shape he he it starts out with him kind of trying to address crowds and normally the people don't hear him he's always interrupted my by machines at the moment he's trying to speak there's usually things that uh, uh, you know interrupt him um, so that was part of it and then then as the book goes on, he, he starts to climb up on things. Like he goes up onto a, a hilltop. He starts, he climbs a broadcast tower. He buys a megaphone to try and reach people. So there is kind of an arc to the book, but, um, and it, and I, when it came and to ending was it, I that, wasn't sure. But when was that there, Robert? Like, cause in the making of the book, like how, when you had these different, the piles and when he started going places, like when, cause how do you resist? Cause you said you want it to be 
intuitive. So you want to have it coming from s- mm-hmm. like the subconscious or whatever. Well, place. I think I think that that happened pretty late. I mean, I was probably forty or so poems in at the time. I started to realize, okay, well, this could happen and this could happen, and because you could see what was happening, right. like with the machines. Right. Absolutely. Um, the idea of the machines happened early on, and the, and I mean, the book on some level is dark, but it, but I was I was laughing when I was writing a lot of it. There's a, there's there's you know it's tongue in cheek too. This is a guy. I've often said it's kind of like Seinfeld meets the Book of Revelations. Um, in some way, I, I don't know what that means but this guy's you know he's out there and he's trying to engage people kind of like a street preacher sort of thing but well his his voice is definitely saying things like in an old way mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's a strange character. I mean, he's kind of informed by pop culture, um, you know, sort of outdated pop culture. He, he's a Trekkie a little bit. He, he watches Star Trek and Star Wars. And I realized before the show when I was looking at this book that I haven't looked at in a few months, but um, he... I, I think I involved every Spielberg movie, or at least three Spielberg references in there, which I hadn't thought about, but that's kind of funny. Um, Star Wars, um, Jaws, and um, one other one that I can't think of. <laughs> but but um, but that's very strange for my work. This is a this is an unusual book for me because the Seed Thieves, my first book, and the X Files are in it. Yes, and the X Files. So there's a few. Um, but the Seed Thieves was kind of a collection of poems on very you know varying subject matter. This one was very organized. And these are the only two books of yours that I've been able to see because I didn't I didn't see your first book or first chapbook. The first chapbook really w- forms the core of what became the Seed Thieves, and that was called Old Bright Wheel. Um, but these really are my first two full-length collections and they're very different so so did old bright wheel did that um did did some of those poems emerge from the sarah lawrence uh time definitely or? yeah Mo- um, a good solid core of old bright wheel and the seed thieves was my master's thesis at sarah lawrence um and then you know it was 10 years before I published that first book, which was a long time, but it was but, a good long time. But you were time. still writing, you were producing new work, but still looking, believing in, in this as a, as a group of poems, as definitely, a book. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, it was much the same in the sense that I just wanted to write poems, not think too much about where they're coming from or where they're going. Um, but then at some point, you know, I started thinking, all right, time to really shape this manuscript. And it had about three different titles. Um, I sent it out for a couple different years before Merrick Press really uh, was a fortunate accident, in a sense, finding Merrick Press. So, well, um, How so? Well, Because that seems like a Michigan community of writers, even though they publish internationally yeah. known writers. Well, I had reached a point where I was really exasperated with the whole process of sending the contest and all of that. And, um, you know, I was at the point where I just really almost wanted to push it aside and just focus on my writing. Um, and at that point, it was almost like a, just this dark night. And then the next morning, I was speaking with Peter Marcus, my good friend. And I know he's out there in Radio Land. How you doing, Pete? Peter! Uh, <laughs> brother Pete. And, and editor of both books. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. yeah, so Pete said, you know, hey, I know you have a manuscript you've been throwing around. How's it going? And I, I told him, you know, that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But he said, well, let me look at it. And... Um, and he was very interested in it. And uh, yes, and then I was very fortunate that Mary Press um, was interested in this one, too. So so those were two great strokes of... Oh, because was Pete also... Was he an editor at Merrick Press then yeah, at, at the time? In, in that first he's round... He's a friend of the show. He's been on the program before, yeah, Pete Marcus. Pete's great. He, um, in that first round of... of well, I, my book wasn't in the first wave of books with Mary Press. It was in the second wave. But Pete was really serving as kind of a poetry and fiction editor. And then uh, Ilya Kaminsky is the new poetry editor, or was for some time. So there's been some you know, turnover. But um, 
but it was fantastic that Pete thought it would be good to have, you know, my work. So, yes. Yeah, so thanks to Mr. Marcus yes. in some ways. And, <laughs> and to Merrick Press. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> it's good to note. Yeah. Shout out to Merrick Press. Definitely. Well, let's, um, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll hear, um, another from American prophet, uh, Robert Fanning today on living writers. We'll be back. back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel and today on Living Writers, Robert Fanning. Um, so we're talking about the latest book, the latest collection, American Prophet, and there's, and there's more on deck. It's interesting talking about the shaping of collections and how yeah, there is one thing I, sure, I, I yeah. would want to talk about, how different it is that we're, um, that the, the books are. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so when you were writing The Seed Thieves or when, when you were shaping it, uh, uh, since many of those poems came from the Sarah Lawrence time when you mm-hmm. went there to get your MFA, um, did, you, did you work with Marie Howe? I worked with Marie well? and, uh, and Tom Lux very closely. They were my thesis advisors. What, what sort of um, influence or if, are you able to see in your development at that time in the poems? Well, what's fascinating is um, it's sort of bipolar because Marie was always... Um, and she's a, a mentor in getting you to write about your personal experiences and, you know, connecting with your spiritual side and, and um, you know, sort of not confessional, but just writing about your life, you know. Um, and Tom, and I was kind of doing a little bit of both, but I was kind of reacting against writing about my life because a lot of people were doing it and, you know, there was a lot of confessionalism going on and it was frustrating me. I, I felt like a lot of poems were sounding like journal entries and diary ent- entries. So I started writing poems that were very different from that. And then when, it, when the thesis was done it was sort of half and half and and so tom was telling me well your better work avoids that and marie was when she looked at my final thesis she said where what happened to you where are you in these poems so so and i still that still exists in me this kind of constant pull between writing about my life or or not writing or you know being in the poems or not being in the poems and and i think i'll always have a balance of both american prophets very different obviously because i'm not in there but um I, i expect my next book will be Maybe more like the seed thieves, where there'll be a lot of poems on different things and different topics, and, and so on, and then maybe some about my life too. It's been a tremendous time in my life. I've, I've um, had two children born. Um, I lost a brother in '06, and my sister died oh. just a month ago. So um, there's oh. been a lot of upheaval, and and then moving, and and um, starting a new career, and so it's hard to not write about your life uh, at times like that, you know. Um, I'm so sorry. Oh no, that that's fine. Um, but it's um. So I'm, um, you know, that's. It's hard to say what 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 will make shape of the next book, but. Um. 
because it is it was interesting to hear you say that then this this prophet was wandering through your um your mind and your imagination some years ago you know because when so, so in a way you probably let's we'll definitely before we say goodbye today we'll get to some of the new work too, sure, sure. so that um you can hear how that sounds out, out out loud um and so currently um your present life. Uh, you're wearing a different hat because when I met you, you were at Inside Out Detroit, um, a wonderful place. Uh, but now you're at Central Mich- Michigan University mm-hmm. uh, as as a professor professing. Pro- yeah, I'm professing many things. Um, yeah, that's a big change, obviously. Um, I was the managing director at Inside Out, which is a phenomenal organization. Terry Blackhawk, a poet, runs that organization and um, sending writers into the Detroit public schools. And, and that was a tremendous experience, experience for me coming uh, after graduate school and a short stint as a corporate guy at a as a tech writer for a few years um but inside out was um that i can't see uh, no (laughs) no that was a very difficult time just watch the movie office space and that was my life um so but inside out was a place uh that shaped me immensely and being able to work with children um in detroit who are amazing and to work with so many tremendous writers like yourself and and other folks who uh i met in those years um but after my both of my children were born i i realized okay i need to and i'd always had the love and and hope to teach at a university so i decided to sort of cast that line out there and just see what would happen and uh I don't know if it was a stroke of luck, but um, Central was interested, and and um, and I love it there, and I'm and um, I feel like this is where I belong uh, in the classroom, um, working with you know still young writers, and um, it's a tremendous faculty I work with, and they they were very welcoming. We have um, a good core of creative writing faculty. Jeffrey Bean, who's a poet, who you should definitely have on the show, who um, was hired at the same time as me, so it's it's a good place to be. So is the creative writing department growing then? Is it something they're focusing yeah, on? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, um, our hope you said you're starting a reading series uh, off air. You yeah. It, well, there's a good community there already. Um, Eric Torgerson um, just retired. And, and, you know, there's just a, a, a good community of, of writers there and teachers. Um, and then but, you know, we hope to build on it. And uh, there's no question there's kind of energy and uh, hopefully maybe see an MFA program uh, in the works. And um, so, you know, it's in the middle of Michigan. It's in Mount Pleasant. And, um, you know, I want to I want to make things happen there that's you know for writing for for the community for young poets and so i'm kind of building on a fire that's already there so it's great well it's i bet i i can just say they're lucky to have you oh thank you so much and i'm sure inside out is is a much different place with you not there but the the good work continues it does yeah their their website i check all the time and i get their emails and um you know it's a terrifically difficult environment for any organization now but especially nonprofits um but they're they're making they're making it happen and uh, it was it was really hard to leave you know there's so many good people i mean just about any poet in detroit you talk to has had something to do with inside out at some point has worked there or is working there so it's uh it's a a real core for poets in detroit and, and it's really also so it's it's a haven in a way for for the poets but the the 
the new poets, the baby poets, the kid poets. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a really... Well, a place for them to um, learn about poetry and see their work in print, which is amazing. Um, Inside Out makes a book each year for each of the schools. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, Bunch Elementary had their own book and, and the others. Which well. is, you know, I, I look back when I was a, a little one and uh, I had a piece of writing in a, in a little book. And, and, um, and, and so little things that happened. Where like was that. yours in? And what, <laughs> yeah. Well, my first book I wrote at Fox Hills Elementary School in fourth grade, which was called The First Ten Presidents. Um, which was, um, I don't know, kind of probably uh, nothing. <laughs> but but it was the experience of ha- realizing I wrote a book and I went to this young authors conference and it was just exciting, you know. Um, what did the book look like, though, Robert? Did you did you have it bound? Did, did you, or was it stapled? Or? <laughs> Pretty much stapled, yeah. yeah. yeah and I think I did, my, I, did, I did my own <laughs> illustrations of the first 10 presidents and... Uh, <laughs> Which I can still see, I think, um, my um, John Adams, you know, in my head. Anyways, um, but but I'm making light of it. But really, those experiences growing up, you know, when you have a, a teacher who, or somebody who leans in and says, you know, you're really good at putting words together, or you should try and do this. Um, there, enough can't be said about how important that is. And, and most writers, you you ask how it began, and it was usually something at home, somebody who encouraged them or believed in them, and or a school or a teacher, you know. Yes, because it's a struggle, and I think you need those those openings to keep going. Absolutely, right? yeah. And and then another one came for you when you're a poet when you were seventeen. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know when it, when I was always writing in a journal, and I still write in a journal. Um, but it, it was really this poetry and the love of poetry really started in high school and then of course in college and who um, did you read then was it someone you read or was it the actual the making of it where it gave you an outlet maybe it was the making of it you know but i but i also realized i was just it was one of the first things that made my my veins glow my my you know made me get goosebumps made made me feel like there was something on fire inside of me inside of my life so um you know, it was those formative experiences that are the reason I still do it, you know. Um, it still is a haven. It still is a place uh, where I feel most alive when I write or when I read poems. Um, I've never thought of um, crossing the line, so to speak, into fiction or anything like that. I'm I'm, pro- I'm pretty much a pure poet in that way, although I would love to. I'm envious of people who can, like, write novels. I remember when I was at Sarah Lawrence, um, uh, a student, who I lived with at the time, she had, she was working on her novel and she had post-it notes all over the wall and, you know, notebooks on, you know, like it was the whole room. It's like she was in, in, she was living inside of her work and, you know, that's such a grand scale. So I'm envious of that, you know, um, poems are conversely rather, you know, like tiny, almost like models of a city, you know. But, but when are you, cause when you're walking around or when you're, you're being a dad or, or being a professor, like, are you like, when are you inhabiting the poem or the, is it the, those moments when you, you you sit down, put on the headphones and the music, or, or what? Well, we, I didn't answer that question earlier, but about being a parent and a, and and a writer, and um, and it has certainly changed my process in a massive way. Because you know, I used to have four or five hours stretches of time to sit in the cafe, think, write, read. Now, <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Um, I remember re- reading about William Stafford, who used to get up at f- six when his kids were first born, and then five when they get a little older, and then four in the morning to write. And I, I most recently have, have started doing that. I get up at 
you know, six if I can, and sometimes five to start to write. And so my time is different. And my time is, you know, cut down to maybe an hour or two of good writing time. So um, I find that it is changing my process. I tend to write a little bit more quickly, which maybe isn't a bad thing. You know, I think we sure shift with uh, what our life offers us as far as writing time. So well, why don't we, could we hear one of the new poems? Oh, sure, sure, sure. And then, oh, that would be great. Well, uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't written much in the last few months, but I do have some work it, that's shaping toward it, a new book. But it's, well, that's great. Great news. But it sounds like you actually are, um, you're making room for the process of writing and for the habit of it. Mm-hmm. Is that true, Robert? Well, or are you misleading us with this <laughs> getting up at 5 a.m.? Well, that's pretty recent. I mean, my first year at Central Michigan, I was very focused on um, teaching and wanting to be a good teacher and get off on the right foot with that. And, and um, you know, moving into the college classroom uh, was a new thing to me. I'd, I hadn't been in academia since I, you know, since graduate school. So I had a lot of prep work to do. And, um, but this summer I'm, I've been starting to get back to, into writing and, uh, you know, it's a bumpy beginning, but now I'm, I'm getting back into it. So hopefully we'll continue. But this is a poem I wrote, uh, um, fairly recently. Um, actually there are some, because the, if, are you, this one is the one that Garrison Keillor read. Yeah, so actually I won't read that because if you want to hear that one, you can you go can to go. that website. <laughs> uh, it's called A Deer in the Target. And, um, but I'll read another one okay. that uh, was inspired by um, learning about uh, Pope Benedict, Benedict in the Catholic Church uh, deciding to do away with limbo, which was something that was very interesting and funny to me that you could just you know <laughs> decide to get rid of something um, like that. And so it's called Limbo's Babies Softly Falling. <laughs> Since the 13th century, they've floated in limbo, the souls of dead, unbaptized babies, cooing and orphaned, their moony faces peering out from the clouds of their sweet little death gowns at their mobiles of real stars and planets. St. Gregory of Nassiansis, 329 to 390 AD, gave birth to the notion of limbo, prescient enough to know the faithful wouldn't go for the thought of pudgy, unblessed newborns pierced like mini-wieners on the pitchforks of demons sitting around hell's eternal campfire. To him and others it seemed half-decent, a compromise whereby these little less-than-desirable babies could have a celestial cry-room, albeit at the far reaches of heaven, so their sinful wailing wouldn't disturb the Lord. St. Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430 AD, profoundly disagreed, reasoning that babies, even the snuggliest ones, if they ain't been dunked in the holy pool, then they ain't getting in. Though he added an amendment to the idea that in hell they wouldn't be tortured quite as badly as the rest. Nine hundred years later, when the idea of limbo finally came into being officially, St. Thomas Aquinas began speculation already that maybe limbo shouldn't exist. But it has. For seven centuries, seven centuries of this poorly lit back room nursery in heaven's maternity ward, seven centuries of screaming babies stained with original sin and spit up, angels coming and going in the halls with nasal aspirators and burp cloths stuck caring for the un-Catholic dead ones. Until this year, when with one stroke of his pen, gallant in his robe, Pope Benedict declared these babies would no longer be in limbo. 
At the moment of this edict, Limbo's floor and walls evaporated, whoosh, and the souls of Limbo's babies began to fall, fall feather light, down, down through the spheres, through clouds and soft rain, some settling in streams, some in beds of long grasses, others gently rocking in treetops. And all across the earth, grieving mothers and ghosts of grieving mothers came out into the fields, their arms outstretched, weeping with elation, ready to catch and cradle them, and before God comes to snatch them back to heaven, to carry them, their dead ones, home. Thank you, Robert, <laughs> for reading that. Um, it's it, it's it's amazing how they have these moments of such seriousness and sadness, but then with these piercing, humorous, like the spit up, <laughs> you know, like that when that comes up, it's you know impossible not to have a release valve there of of laughter. Well, that's always been a really important thing to me, and I try to aim for that spot when I write a poem where the reader is kind of um, themselves in limbo between laughter and tears, you know, like kind of emotionally in the middle there. And I think that's I love that. I love reading work that uh, that does that. Where it's it's funny, but beneath it, you know, you kind of have the full range of experience. That's. I guess James Tate comes to mind. He often oh, yeah. does for me. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, and, and Tom Lux, my mentor, is certainly some yes. maybe brought that to me too. Um, that kind of laughter through tears kind of thing. <laughs> as corny as it sounds, it sounds like a country music song. But, um, but that th that spot in in the heart to aim for, you know, um, is big. And then, um, but I like poems that make me laugh. You know. It's just a, a important, I think. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to hear more with Robert Fanning, his latest collection, American Prophet. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Day after day, alone on a hill, the man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still. Nobody wants to know him They can see that he's just a fool And he never gives an answer But the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down And the eyes in his head See the world spinning round Well on the Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers uh, today on the program. Robert Fanning. Uh, we've been hearing poems from American Prophet, his latest collection with Merrick Press. Um, and we just heard a new one, uh, too, from the upcoming collection, yet yet to really be named. Yeah, I've been working with the title Terra Beautiful, T-E-R-R-I, Beautiful, which is a word that, I've, that means a lot to me that I kind of coined several years ago. But it's a loose collection right now. I don't know when it'll begin to take shape. 
And what do you mean by loose collection? Is, is it just all, are they all running around? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're running, they're running amok. And one of them just ran by. Um, actually, I, I, quietly though, yeah, very, very, quietly. very kindly knowing yeah, that it it's was, radio. It was a sweet little poem. It just looked in at us. Um, well, I, uh, I think, you know, I just, I, I, I use the metaphor of gardening a lot, you know, for, or, or farming even. Um, for American Prophet, you know, the poems were kind of driven, obviously, by this character, and, uh, and the writing process was very different. The Sea Thieves and probably the next one I write will be, um, you know, probably poems on many different things. You know, the, the one I just read, Limbo's Babies, um, I've got poems, uh, some elegies for my brother and sister who are lost. So there, there's just some maybe more political work. Um, there's just, there's just, it's all over the place. So um, right which now is, is but, which is good. I mean, which is a, a return. It does. I don't think there has to be a, a theme I agree. or something that's. Yeah. I agree. Unless uh, unless you, you're driven by that or right. that, which the, the last book was. But I love a book of poems that just is all over the place um, where each poem is a different experience. And that's those are my favorite books. So um, so this book is I have about 20 or 30 new pieces, but um, I it'll be a while before I really start to see things emerging. Um, and, and so, so the farming metaphor I was alluding to, this one I'm, I'm just I'm kind of planting seeds and, and um, transplanting things, moving things around in the garden. It's, you know, it'll be a long time before I really see, okay, you know, this is how things are shaping up. Do you, do you all live on a farm? Then is that something that... Well, you know, that's funny because um, when I was writing The Seed Thieves and, and American Prophet, we had, my wife and I had a little organic farm plot. And uh, and um, so I, I'm not a farmer. I, I, I don't know anything about farming. But I think that for writing, that metaphor pops up a lot for me. Um, I think there's something that's very real about that in creating something, getting down on the ground and digging and all of that, or in the self. That's know. right. And Seamus Heaney would be that's very much absolutely. about that as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a poem that really speaks to that very much. But let's talk about, um, for a moment, because you chose um, The Fool on the Hill, um, because you you felt like that really, it, it, it the, pretty much embodies this American prophet. Yeah, that, uh, that struck me. <laughs> Last night I was pulling together the few songs I, that we we're using as interludes today, and that song came on, and it just blew me away because l lyrically it's uh, I mean it, it describes the book perfectly day after day alone on a hill the man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still but nobody wants to know him they can see that he's just a fool and he never gives an answer but the fool on the hill sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round uh, well on the way head in a cloud the man of a thousand voices talking perfectly loud but nobody ever hears him or the sound he appears to make and he never seems to notice so I, I was just shaken to my core by that because it's really it's exactly what this character is he's kind of the fool on the hill you could have actually had that on the back cover <laughs> yeah with the you know of course crediting where yeah, credit is yeah. due the beatles <laughs> yeah, i guess i would give <laughs> they them a didn't little know credit, they were <laughs> giving a review of sorts right? <laughs> right right um yeah and so so with with the let's hear another from american prophet okay I'll, I'll read one that um and this is probably the last one i'll read from here but i want to read it because we're in ann arbor and uh, ypsilanti's down the road and this was inspired by the elvis fest which i think is st it's still going on i don't know if it's already happened this summer or if it's coming I, up but i think we missed it for yeah, some reason but i'm so glad this i actually was going to ask you if you'd read this oh, one good. so this is yeah perfect this was this was i was i went to the very first elvis fest and i thought it was wonderful and so the, this is a, one of these times where the prophet is trying to speak to a crowd well uh, did you connect to that Beatles song when you first heard it as like a, a as a young man as a human being um, <laughs> um 
I, I've always loved the Beatles. I mean, they've been one of my my favorite bands for years. But it, that was totally out of the blue last night that 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 song that I made that connection. Um, but I've always loved that song. Because how do you do you also like when you when you met this prophet when you and and he sort of came became a character. Um, were there parts of you that were that you could just it, it just allowed you to, to be this man in the black suit and the black. Yeah, and and there's a distinction I should make because it's not it has nothing to do with me. I mean, there's there's not it's not in and actually it was in first person for the first few poems, which was was a mistake I realized early on. I wanted to distance myself from this character. Um, So even though I I suppose if somebody did a psychoanalytic reading of it, um, they would disagree with me. But I but the character to me was I was very much watching him and kind of stalking him as he went to these different places. So um, that was. And that was very important to me, just allowing him to be distant, you know. And and I don't, I didn't know who he was. I still don't, to, in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that he's kind of a, you know, he's trying to say something that maybe speaks to a lot of people. Um, and I think it was, you know, during the time, it was just, you know, we've had these wars going on. There's just atrocities everywhere, and I guess that's the history of the world. But just realizing that, you know, what can we do? What can, what are we supposed to do about all of this? And so he's somebody who's trying to engage with people, but he's a little bit voice because of the machines around him and the, the people he's trying to address are usually ignoring him or looking elsewhere um, but this is called the prophet at Elvis fest and uh, so I'll just let you hear it the prophet at Elvis fest beneath the certain stars this field in Ypsilanti is filled with aged greased believers dolled up grandmas gleaming muscle cars descending the hill in his black suit the prophet too has come to see the king Raised in another time, he stands outside the glow that lights the faces of the gathered throng, curious and a world apart. On wet grass, the die-hard worshippers all rise from folding chairs, all eyes on the mobile rent-a-stage as the first Elvis, inevitably in diapers the day the real king died, mounts the stage. Soon enough, hound dog howls through the crackling amps as this king, quaffed and sneering, twists his leather hips on well-oiled bearings. All the old gals wail. And so begins this litany of hits, a barrage of oldies hours into the night as each of seven Elvises revisits a different era of the king. In a brief lull prior to the arrival of the last king, the prophet ascends the stage, not to sing, but to deliver them a simple message. Pointing toward the sky, he begins, Believers, see how the blue moon wanes? But when he sees they're unmoved, he taps the mic, confused. He wavers, but continues louder. How will we notice, know the voice of a true king among us? Distracted, they stare elsewhere, and for a moment the prophet knows how Elvis must have felt near the end, numbed, staring out through the haze at a sea of strangers, his voice rising faint and unrecognizable in the distant radio station of his chest. Just then, parting waves of fans in a huge, high-finned cruiser, the evening's king of kings arrives, a glittering whale in tight white polyester. His bell-bottoms shush as he passes through hushed watchers, savior in a pompadour and dark glasses. 
belly rippling with rhinestones, heavyweight belt of false gold, handful of faux silk scarves. Holding a wireless mic, he croons, I can't falling in love with you. Stopping at a woman lost in the middle of the crowd who watches from a wheelchair. Bending toward her like some carnival preacher or evangelist, he wraps the scarf around her neck as she closes her eyes, still afflicted, offering her face to the small miracle of his kiss. Thank you, Robert. You're welcome. And you got the Elvis impersonation. I knew there was going to be another impression. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) Whenever I come to that line, I think, should I sing it? I don't know. Yeah. It's not a very good Elvis, but no, that was that was a that was a great Elvis. Alex is <laughs> nodding. There's all right, cool. Got... Thumbs up. Yeah, um, and with your poetry, it seems like the performance that you really you get into the poem, you embody it, and and it's in your body as you're reading it. Um, and and is that something that you just do naturally? It's something that has always been that way for you. And so you would sing it. Yeah, yeah, which I usually do. I for me, um, it's really hard actually for me to sit down like we are now and read these poems. I, um, yeah, I tend to really get into it when I read them. Which because um, you even mentioned shouting earlier when we were doing yeah, the sound check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Normally, when you hear the prophet's voice, he's shouting. I've even thought of you know bringing along a megaphone and. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's something. Um, I mean, I don't like to go over the top, but I, I really the poems to me. I've always, I use this a lot when I talk with students, and that that the poem itself on the page is just a a, a blueprint or really like a sheet music. Um, that the the poem coming off the page is it, it's where it's really coming to life, and um, so that to me is the last stage of the poem's life. I just I I love to read poems aloud, um, and I've done a lot of it. I, I did a lot of readings for the Seed Thieves, and um, so and and I, I mean I think I've gotten to be a better reader. As I, as I've gone along, um, it just means a lot to me. I, and I, is it part of the work of the poet? I almost said part of the work of the prophet. <laughs> You've um, convinced me, Robert Fanny. <laughs> um, I, I do. I think I think that um, people need to give thought to their readings, and I love. Um, people who read where the work just comes off the stage and has its own kind of voice. Um, I love that. And I think we're kind of, um, thanks to performance poetry and, and slam and, and, um, and performance, I think we're really coming to a point now where, you know, that kind of melding of, of the poem on the page and, and, and as an oral um, production, it's, we're kind of merging those two again, which I think is really important. Um, I've seen poets read whose work is just alive on the page and just bursting with energy, but then they read and there's just no music behind it. There's no voice behind it. So. But there is music in it on the page. Right, and so that's tragic to have a poem just kind of lay flat like that. So I do, I do love to read them aloud. And um, and do you have any upcoming readings that we should tell folks about, or anything uh, with reading, Merrick Press or um, or at the university? Well, I'm reading on August 16th at the Scarab Club in Detroit, and it's a series called Musings, where they pair a poet with a, um, a musician. And I don't know who this musician is, but um, have you, so you haven't you have been paired, but you haven't. You, it's not a collaboration. No, it's just, just that you'll appear together right, on the same stage. Right, not at the same time. Even I don't think the musician plays, and then the poet reads. Um, but the Scarab 
Club is a great place to hear poems. So if anyone out there wants to go to that. And August 16th. Yes. And then in um, October, I will be at the Spring Fed Writers Retreat um, in northern Michigan. And that's October 8th through 10th. And Marie Howe will be there and Dorian Lokes. And uh, so that should be good. And then um, not too many readings other than that. I'm going to be reading in Atlanta um, in the spring um, at Georgia Tech, which is a great reading series there and I'm really excited about. But um, but I've been doing less readings, uh, which is probably a good thing. Um, I was I was doing like one a week for the Seed Thieves, and you know it gets tiring. So, and and I'm in a period now where I want to make new work, so that's important. And with the and also when you go in the when the fall, not that it's almost here, although it feels oh, like it's looming it a little it's bit. Looming. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> No. The end of the summer is coming, and that's the only prophetic thing I'm going to offer. <laughs> well, you know what? Today, when I was looking at your Facebook page, and then um, because I'm not on Facebook, and then I saw that you were on Goodreads, and you know, looking at that, so then it inspired me when I saw that. Um, Peter Marcus had zero books and 50 friends. I was like, I should really at least, you know, change, you know, look at Goodreads again. So I actually I entered into that. Oh, have the, you? I haven't really the looked surreal at surreal world of the Internet. Yeah, I know. I haven't looked at Goodreads much. I think I, I, I got up on there, but I just haven't done much with that. Facebook is, you know, it's a good place to connect with people. And uh, so really, OK, so you're. But it's it's mildly addictive and you should stay away from it because <laughs> it's really st a strange thing. I don't need to inform people out there but um but uh, yeah it's it's very but it's been good you know as a writer to connect to other writers who I, I would never have had the chance to meet so it's it's great for that and and who like are there people that you're finding like new new writers that you're reading that's in influencing the work that's percolating right now for you that's a, i'm glad you asked that i have um i met david wagner this this summer um at a at a Actually, it was in the spring at an, an event in Saginaw to, uh, commemorating Theodore Refke's centennial, and yes. um, and I had not really seen his work very much, and uh, I've been really enjoying reading that quite a bit. Um, there's some, especially his later work. I, there's some wonderful poems in there, and he's been inspiring me lately. Oh, that's really exciting! Yeah, he's from the Pacific Northwest, and and had a writer's residency at Hugo House, where I used to oh, work out in Seattle. So yeah, he, that's I, wonderful. I, I, he's one of those people that I haven't really connected with um, and now I feel lucky to be reading his work. This I, we're lucky to have more hopefully more of those always ahead and maybe people are also hopefully they're connecting now to American Prophet oh, and that'd be, that'd be nice. And to the future thank you so much Robert Fanning thank you for, for being me. here on, on Living Writers. Thanks again to Alex Bellhodge for engineering. Thanks Ann Arbor for listening and for streaming wherever you are be it Florida, Chicago Seattle, who knows um, again American Prophet, uh, Robert Fanning's latest. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.